0: Hello everyone, this is Zetto Ninja, and you are now listening to the Storm Connect Podcast, published by the new rebrand podcast network name known as the Sigil Arts Network. I talk about gaming topics and anime series of my own interests like Ruby, Hunter x Hunter, Persona Vibe Royal, and more. The goal I aim to accomplish on every episode is to provide insights on these subjects that are usually overlooked, to spread awareness, and learn more. On the previous Royal podcast of our RR coverage, I fleshed out all my thoughts and answered questions regarding Persona 5 Royal without spoiling the game. So, in this episode, this will now be a full on spoiler review of Persona 5 Royal. So, if you have not completed the Royal Edition yet and plan on playing it to the end, I suggest you skip this podcast episode for right now and return here when you are finished with the game completely. This spoiler review is going to be more story focused rather than gameplay focused since we already covered most of the gameplay aspects in the last podcast episode, and that's essentially the most anticipated selling point here of this podcast. So we're just going to dive right into the story, tackle everything that needs to be tackled. Let's just get right onto it. Let's begin. I love this game. I love the royal story. I love the Persona 5 story overall. The royal contents, the base Persona 5 contents, I love everything about it. Royal is amazing. It's a beautiful story, still complementing the distorted desires theme, the cognitions, and everything that comes with that. It fulfills that purpose immensely. At first, when Alice was shoving Kasumi Yoshizawa in front of my face, that she's the selling point of personified Royal and stuff like that, I just literally look at her initially, like, what's so special about her? But as you play through the game, like, she's actually a very enjoyable character. And, like I said, she doesn't feel like she was just squeezed into the story, unlike Haru Akumara. She was fleshed out with the story as you spend time with her on your leisure. You learn more about her little by little as the story progresses and as you go through her confidant. So, everything of how she's been introduced was okay. I feel like Haru Akumara should be able to have that type of flesh out like Kasumi did. Because, if you were to take her out, it really would not change much of the game that... Much in a way, in a way, for story, it could, but there is a workaround to it that people can make an argument for, though. But that's theory crafting for later. That is, Madoki was a great character going through his confidant was super enjoyable. I do have a couple comments I do want to make regarding Madoki's appearance as the school counselor for a semester, but I'm gonna get a little bit more into that a little bit later, though. But for the brief, I enjoyed Madoki's character very, very much. The confidant and going through the royal uh the royal story essentially as him being the antagonist now like i said do not misunderstand me i enjoyed everything that's on the preface i still feel with it to this day i still believe that it's amazing and i think it's a worthy experience that everyone should go through however and i'm gonna say this right now this is me coming from a persona 5 royal fan i give this game a 10 out of 10 but I need to talk about certain things of Royals content that it has to be out there. All perspectives and the points of what has happened, I think it needs to be approached with an open mind and they should be out there. I know this is gonna sound really concerning and there's gonna be a lot of question marks when I introduce this. So, I'll just go ahead and say it. My number one main issue with this game. I know. Really hard for me to even say that, I just, ah, it, it kind of hurts me a little bit, though, but I, I just gotta say it. Anyways, <laughs> my number one main issue with Persona 5 Royal story is that you can still, for some reason, get the original ending from base Persona 5. It's nice and all, but to get the full experience of Persona 5 Royal, since that is what's advertised, you have to max out Monoki's confidant, Kasumi's confidant, and catchy's Confidant if you want his third Persona Awakening and a certain cutscene to alter it in a way where it should be. If you do not, then you'll go to the normal route of it which is odd. The main purpose is to play the Royal Definitive Edition, not do certain requirements just to unlock the new events. At that point, for the people that are making the argument that the game should have been DLC and not worth the $60, It's making that point more justified as to why it should have been DLC in the first place. The only counter argument to this is that whoever has not played the original Persona 5 and jumped right into Royal, they can do the original ending first and then jump right into the Royal experience with another save file, which it does save time, and, you know, it doesn't really have to you don't have to purchase the original game, you could just purchase Royal, and then go with that original route, and then go with the Royal route, which, I don't know, I find that really strange, since again, the main premises of this game is all about Royal. Again, the new definitive edition, not stressing about going through certain requirements here and there just to get that. I think that's just really weird in that aspect. Now, let's talk about the setup of the Royal lore. The integration with the characters and how it was supposed to be set up Of course, it was pretty obvious that Monoki was going to be the antagonist for the new palace, and since we have seen the advertisements of Kasumi being the new quote-unquote phantom thief member, it was easy to line the pieces up here and there. Spending time with Monoki as the school's counselor, it was really nice, do not misunderstand me on that, but there were certain keywords and phrases that were too obvious for the theme that complements the cognition world ideas. And also, there are not any more new actual characters into Persona 5 Royal, you have Royal Kasumi and Royal Maroki, and that's all you get with the quote-unquote new characters, so yeah, it's obvious to see which is which. They seem to have a habit of making the characters' roles too obvious, for whatever reason, I'm not so sure as to why. I will say that their impact of their roles is what makes it good, but I think it would have a greater impact if we were to be caught off guard in a certain way, you know? Speaking of character roles, we're gonna dive a lot more into Maruki as the new palace ruler right here. See, here's my thing. Maruki messing with Memento's core, replacing the god of control, his background as a cognitive science researcher, and his motives, I think it tied in well. Maruki's will of rebellion without entering in the metaverse was making his persona stronger as he was wanting to make people's wishes a reality. It is the same equivalence of the dream world idea, yet it's scarier that it can actually become the new rewritten reality. See, that's great and all, but there's something wrong here, and I'm going to expose that convoluted plot hole. The problem with this idea is that when the Fanda erased Mementos and defeated the God of Control, their access to the Meta-Nav was gone. Meaning, if they cannot go back to the very place that was the source of all society's distorted desires and their only way to summon their personas, Monoki shouldn't have been able to gain access to Mementos and create the many abnormalities that were transpiring with reality. Instead, the MetaNav should have still existed, but their access to mementos would have been erased for the time being until Maruki was revealed as the new palace ruler, and especially the new icon change. It has the clear, rainbow, colorful look to the meta nav, to how it looks now because of Maruki, so in a way, that could probably throw out the fantasies of, oh yeah, well, now you didn't, stuff like that, rather than still being erased. There could be many speculations about it, but they wouldn't really think about that because they just beat the God of Control, erased Mementos, and stuff like that. Now, there are a couple theories to counter this, yet the problem is that they could remain just as theories rather than confirmed facts. Like, A, Maroki has the power of actualization, and that power could make it seem that it was erased until Joker, Kasumi, and Akechi approached the palace. B, Maruki's palace was the only distorted palace that was not erased, and his persona had the power to bring back Mementos at its original state before merging with the reality without the existence of the God of Control taking its place from there. See, since Mementos is the cognition form of everyone's distorted desires, it probably slowly collected that again, retaking to its original form and during its recreation, that is when Maroki was able to tangle those desires because his Persona returned to assist him, having the masses turn to Maroki rather than the Phantom Thieves themselves. You see what I mean when I say this, the ever-growing theories that could tell of exactly what happened? Because we got most of it though, but it's still like an, a very unclear idea, especially with the laws that were introduced into Persona 5 Royal, We're not so sure of, like, what exactly happened at that point. And even Levenza, it's like, there may be a little bit of a small speculation involved in that. But even to that extent, it is still an issue, especially with the big, big, important detail like that. Simply saying the Fantasies had their wishes of what their realities would have been is just not enough. Just to be like, oh yeah, that's how it came back because Madoki was able to gain that power. Period. What? No, that doesn't make any sense. When we reviewed the flashback tapes, entering into his palace, he awakened to his persona on the day the Fantasies fought the God of Control, and you cannot do that unless you are in the Metaverse which it became one with reality that day for a short time, though he awakened it before it was erased. And when it was erased, Mementos still should have not vanished that way. But, even then, all that being said, I'm gonna have to give credit to Maroki's persona, since it had unique, dangerous powers that were even more frightening than Yaldabaoth himself. It defied the loss, the erasure of the metaverse, And it still existed in Maroki's other self. That is frightening. And see, even with Maroki taking the new seat of the god, regardless, like, not even the god himself should have been able to do that by the time it was erased. As mentioned before, I understand that through their counseling sessions with Maroki, they wished for a reality that would have made them more happier rather than going to the true events of what happened in the actual reality. What I don't understand is even with all their counseling sessions saved with Maroki subconsciously with his persona, that should have been nullified because if we go back to... Joker talking to his teammates in the velvet room they were doubting themselves really hard and they were questioning themselves that they wanted to challenge the god of control again Joker got super personal with each Phantom Thief and asked them What are you fighting for? Why are you here? And everything that you said when you first awakened your persona and the motives that you fulfilled Are you going to throw that away now? At that moment all the Phantom Thieves had their epiphanies They realized that if they give that up now, then everything that they did was for nothing. Henceforth, they reawakened their will of rebellions and were reinstated in the Phantom Thieves. Their wills should have nullified their wishes, even though, regardless if it was done subconsciously or not, like, how would that still be possible? And it also is very strange that the Phantom Thieves did betray, in some way, the people that they were protecting with their selfish desires, which, in a way, they even admitted that it was their fault. But A-plus on the character development, once again, for all of them. <laughs> but, in a way, it was kind of unneeded, but it wasn't entirely bad, either. I mean, it still makes sense that people have their wishes. It's still part of their desire, so it would have still... Float out to Maroki and his other self, the Persona, to make that type of power into what happened in Royal. Oh man, but seeing the Fantasies with their realities that they wished for, it kind of broke my heart in a way. I'm going to get a little bit more into that a little bit later in this podcast episode, but we're now going to move on forward into... I guess you could say, another issue that I have with Persona 5 Royal. Yeah, I know, we're not done here. There's more to talk about. (laughs) Let's get on with it. I am now going to be talking about Kasumi's appearance and her being a fantasy, more so I'm actually going to get on this case right here. Now, I'm not degrading Kasumi's character overall into Persona 5 Royal, more so as to how this was contributed to a certain point of the story. As I mentioned before, she's been fleshed out pretty well. And in some ways, she's the kind of gal to, like, kind of mind her own business. She's kind of doing off her own thing with gymnastics. So I admire her for that. And she really spiced up the story pretty well here by having an interesting stance of the Fanta Thieves. She commends the Fanta Thieves of what they're doing is truly a great act and their intentions mean well. She understands that much, though she does have concerns with that, which it leads to her disagreeing with the Phantom Thieves' method. She believes the Phantom Thieves' acts of changing other people's hearts, it may help for now, but as to how things should be down in the future, it is not going to help out society in the long run. She firmly believes that when people are approached with an issue, they need to actually handle it themselves. Their methods certainly meets to a certain end here, and it doesn't really fulfill to what should be the change for society. And of course, yeah, you're going to need help at like, at the most weakest of times when you really need it though. But because of that, they could potentially get the wrong idea here. And as she critiques on this, that's how a person's development can cease. It causes society to view the Fanta Thieves as a safety net of, hey, can you fix my problem for me? That's where her concern kicks in of people keep doing that. Then that means that they stop making the effort for themselves. And you know what? She's not wrong. Life is not all about, you know, Disney princess bullshit of your hero going to come and save the day. No, you simply just cannot have that idea. It's wrong. Your heroes your shiny knight, prince, armor-looking headass? When it comes to your issues, they don't exist. The world is a scary place, and because that sometimes there are injustices and unfortunate events that could transpire, you have to do everything that you can to protect yourself. You have to do something about it, not rely on someone else to fix it for you. Again, receiving help is one thing, but running away and having that person fix it for you, you will be doomed with setting up unfair expectations on people that have fixed the issues for you and again your development ceases completely it's unfair to seeing a miracle as an expectation and guess what if that said so miracle does not come through in the way they wanted to they're going to become bitter about it they're going to be extremely nasty and guess what that's how they push people away that's how they're going to push everything around their circle And guess what they're gonna go back to being alone square one on whatever issue that they have to work on well they're not going to have a fun time tackling the issue because they never learned or even take into consideration on how to do it themselves you can't necessarily drag people to your issues like that now of course it's not exactly all like that for all scenarios but again take into consideration with mementos requests they're almost somewhat interpersonal problems that it does conflict the law but it doesn't go to the point to where these people have exactly of their own palace like Kamoshida, Madarame and so on forward. It's her way of saying that the concern of that should be tackled if the fanatics are going to continue with their business and ensure the message of them standing up for themselves what their message for to the public that should be emphasized greatly in their changes of hearts. Because think of it this way, right? The fanatheves, they are heavily admired to the public. They have so much attention, more than politics. All these things that are usually you see on TV, they have more attention than any of that above. And guess what? As to what the story has kind of mentioned, society would turn to the fanaties as their next saviors, the gods. Mankind's gratitude towards the fanaties will turn into demands. They will abuse and wish to take advantage of the phenomenon power that they have and the moment that they don't do that one thing when they have done so much for society, Japan overall, again, as you kind of seen in the game already, they turn their backs on them. And as mentioned again, they get absolutely nowhere with it. Actually, probably one way, down south, pretty hard to hell. It's a very tedious, tricky situation, especially to how all the pieces lined up, you know? But with her opinion on the fantasies, you definitely don't hear that from anybody else, not even from a but it was probably like what spiced up the story and it was something that you simply just cannot ignore from a unique opinion like that. Now, have that point in mind. Now fast forward into October after you change Akumara's heart. You accidentally slip into the palace with Kasumi. She awakened her persona, you save her from the palace, and she has her many other questions as any other regular person would in a scenario like that. Hey, let's give a little quick shout out to her delayed reaction to Morgana talking in the real world. The cat, the motherfucking cat, the most delayed reaction I've ever seen in my entire goddamn experience of this playthrough. Oh my god actually talking to the cat so casually and then notices later that he's a talking cat crazy anywho with kasumi having her what the fuck moment and her questions joker and morgana answers all the questions that she has of where the fuck were they at what the fuck was that What are the fucking concept of Personas and how is everything, all of this working and basically tying into her deductions of Joker and Morgana are the Phantom Thieves. She gets the whole picture. She understands the whole concept of that. She's not fucking stupid. She was able to understand everything as to what's been thrown at her. A lot to take in, yes, but now she sees as to why this is such a very complicated mess with the Phantom Thieves at the moment. Though, when she discovers their identity, she had some type of feeling about it, you know? Though she's been super respectful about it, and even with the opinion that she has, she still apologized for it, especially for saying it in the way that she did, she doesn't want to cause harm and such, it's just generally to what she truly believes in. Now, because of her performance back there in the palace, and to the circumstances that transpired, Morgana was thinking of inviting Kasumi into the Phantom Thieves. And understandably so, she turned that offer down, but for the reasoning for that, I did not expect this. Again, in that moment she brings up about her stance on the Phantom Thieves and her concerns of the methods that they are performing. But it just seems like it was just dropped and forgotten? Like, why? Apparently, and I have never heard of this, like, I tried to, like, understand this as closely as possible, but I just cannot fathom the logic of that. But, apparently, awakening her persona made her realize that she cannot have any more shortcomings of her gymnastics. I have never seen somebody had an abnormality phenomenon awakening turn into a realization that they need to focus on whatever, like, aspect of their life they need to focus on, that just, that, that took the most weirdest translation turn ever, it just, I, why? Like, Kasumi is not the only one that has to take care of responsibilities in their daily lives and whatever they need to focus on, hell, the rest of the fanatics have something they, they're focusing on too, Makoto being a student council president, Haru being the fucking heiress of the fucking Akuma foods, come on, Come on! And I also just don't get like, everything that was just explained to her. It just feels like it just went through one ear to the other. Like, now she knows what the great scheme of things are, so it's like, the safest option is to join. Like, it wasn't exactly like, the dangerous if she said no though, but it's like, you know, there are a lot of questions and such. It's like, you THINK that this would not, like, at least, peak your mind it would pique the questioning of everything that's been happening because again, they explain the concepts and everything though but as to how things actually work and how things are happening and such, it's like you might as well do somewhat of an investigation and see how much of a big fuckery mess this is. You're infiltrating people's cognition's hearts. You're doing that and again, it's It's manifested into people's desires, especially that strong enough that it takes into the form of a palace. How could something like this just turn into such a lousy excuse? Like, look, it's a bit unfortunate and tiresome to know that Atlas just does not know how to write a character, a new character into the story like that as to how it was in the base game and stuff like that, but come on, come on, how it ended up this way? Really? There could be many other excuses as to, again, going back to her opinion, or maybe seeing herself what the fantasies are made of and such. Or because this this is too much to handle and all of this to take in, like, it's best to just stay the fuck away from it. No matter how much nearly impossible that is. And when she was awakening her persona, like, there are overflowing thoughts of, the stuff that has happened to her and, like, the bad events and shit in a way that was, like, telling her that, oh, like, especially with, like, the incident that happened earlier that day with Dr. Maruki and her and meeting up with the Vice Principal about her performance in gymnastics. Like, come on. What the fuck? It happened at that moment, at that palace specifically. I just can't see the justification for this type of reasoning. It just sounds so lousy. But here's the worst part. It doesn't stop there. In time before they send the calling card for Sai Nijima, Kasumi returns with more questions and with more concerns for Joker and with everything that she's been wondering about this whole fantasy business and she still puts her faith into Joker but she still kind of feels uneasy about it especially that she asked to make a promise and they said that they can exactly do it that day BECAUSE that they have to set up the calling card, so they- Kasumi already perceived that situation that it's going to be big, so it just led to her following them, right? Now, let's fast forward again. She reunites with Joker once again, after the whole fact that he's presumably dead to the general public, and he's just been nowhere to found after for all this chaos that's been happening for that month. She turns around after giving it some thought and after for the chaos that's been happening, she realizes that she should help. What I don't understand is that this time, the same people who offer her to be part of the group denied her this time. Morgana, the same person that has said himself, we definitely need more Phantom Thief members and the help that we could get to face off against the challenges that they're facing right now, yet denies her. The argument is that it's too dangerous, and they don't know what risks that they could be taking if they do drag her into this, though, but... She... She did fine. She did just fine in that palace. The way of how she performed her attacks, how she could take care of herself, she's fine. You have absolutely nothing to worry about. It's absurd. I will say it's a little bit better than just awakening to a persona and then realizing that you need to focus on gymnastics after awakening to a persona type of excuse, though. But this? I, I, I just, the, the irony, I don't understand this. Again, I am so tired of Atlas's shit. This is their way of saying that she's specifically for the new content, not for the main game content of what it was advertised. I just think this is just so stupid. They just do not want to animate new cutscenes or add in new dialogue for her to pitch in her thoughts about this. This is the one opportunity that they get for a modern Persona game. Come on. I feel like a character that's supposed to be like one of the main selling points of Royal since they were HEAVILY shipping her with Joker and making sure that, like, she gets all the spotlight for being a new character introduced into the Persona 5 world. It kinda was just a little bit in the slap in the face, not gonna lie. And ultimately, like, down in the long run of things, it was somewhat nice and enjoyable. But to say that if it was really worth it, it is a little bit questionable because it didn't make her seem like that she's really not all that. She's still great though, don't misunderstand me on that though, but to what Atlas was advertising, it just... It kind of leads some type of different way, I'm not so sure how to really describe it. It's so concerning, this is like a story type of writing, not character in depth, this is a story focal main point of this, and I don't like that the crucial parts of that, of Kasumi's involvement of Persona 5, it literally was just like, oh yeah, we can't exactly write her in. You to enjoy this nice moment of that though, but you get to enjoy her later. Why? Again, back to the main point that was discussed earlier, this justifies a little bit more of the reason as to why people think it should be DLC and not as a full-on $60 purchasable game. And let's say Alice has their concern of... Kasumi affecting the Persona 5's base plot point before Royal. It really would not alter the story to that huge extent. As a matter of fact, this was another opportunity that they could have taken to deepen the story even more. I also would like to mention that she snuck her way inside of the palace, and it was the second to most dangerous mission that the Fantasies had to go on since they were dealing with Akechi and almost of getting trapped. That's a serious, bold ninja move of her. ...and even did it better than Makoto Nijima, but anyways... So, yes, I do dislike heavily of how this was written here, especially that... ...the opinion that she had of the fan of these, Kasumi Yoshizawa... ...it now just turned into blind faith into Joker, because she's that attached to Joker, and everything that she, she was thinking about... ...for that long time as the chaos was happening, well, again, dropped. And that's my thing, because... She's really not that type of girl, like, even if she comes into a disagreement with somebody, she still keeps it very, very respectful and just avoids drama. So, that's essentially my entire complaint about this game, that story point as a whole with Kasumi being a phantom thief. How I would describe this specifically is a concept that was just simply dropped. For whatever reason, I wish I knew why. I feel like getting to know her bit by bit, it should have been the same way, almost, not exactly the same, but at least almost similar to how we should have been more aware of Haru's existence into the Persona series. I do have a couple more comments of Kusumi Yoshizawa, but in order to actually bring that up, we have to talk about Maruki's Palace, and that's something that we're going to talk about later in this podcast. So for right now, we're going to drive a little bit away from that, save those bullet points for right now, and we're going to move on forward to... A good side of Royal, starting with Goro Akechi into Persona 5 Royal. So, (laughs) I really can't believe I'm going to be saying this again. So, if you did not check out my Persona 5 non-spoiler review or just have not known me like that to know of my full opinion of Persona 5 in general, well, let me clear that up one more time. I am a huge fan hater of Goro Akechi. I think he's actually one of the worst characters of Persona 5. To add on to that, I think he has one of the worst potential fallouts that I've ever seen in Persona 5. Until I played Royal. I never thought that I would see Atlas doing some type of justice to his character. For me, He went from, like, the bottom of my list, and he just skyrocketed to, like, mid to high tier. That's how much of a comeback he made. Now, do not misunderstand me. I still think, like, because that they kept Akechi's story somewhat intact, I still think that, like, he's poorly written. So, how I would describe this is that he had more of a rebound rather than a full redemption, you know? And you know what? I think that's perfectly okay for someone like Goro Akechi. So, let's start with his confidant. I can't believe I'm saying this though, but he was actually enjoyable to talk to. Between Joker and Akechi, it was a nice conversation between those two of their intellects and their stances of the fan of Thieves. I can confidently say that this is the best portrayal of their yin and yang relationship. The trickster and the corrupted detective prince. You can see as the confidant progresses that Akechi is really genuinely interested in Joker's way of thinking, his uniqueness and his attachment to joker if anything his facade aside the bond that they shared it felt more realistic in persona 5 morgana asks akechi if he actually truly hates joker and if you ask me for persona 5 for the base game i would believe that yes but for royal i would say it's kind of a Burning line between like an actual like and dislike relationship though, but I don't think it's purely on hatred this time We do see that in the confidant as we progress through the story Especially when Akechi finds out that you are a phantom thief and he's trying to catch them We see that with rank 7 Even with the ulterior motives that he had, he intentionally did not want to actually kill Joker in a way he wanted to form an alliance between those two with the cost of Joker leaving the Phantom Thieves and abandoning his teammates overall. And of course, you refuse, get to rank eight. You actually get to see the honest side of Akechi. Maybe not like entirely though, but like the way of how he truly is, wow. Of all people he showed that side to, was to Joker, his own rival, And also, enemy. Like, what the fuck? They definitely improved the complex relationship between Joker and Akechi. And the reworked confidant, it was most definitely needed. I believe just getting the leisure time to spend with Akechi personally like this really helped his character a lot more than how it was in base game. But what I love about this more is that as you progress through his confidant, You can see that how he is trying to withhold the bloodlust that he has within him. And it's just amazing that it's just coming out slowly with that. I also think that it kind of just makes up for the obviousness that Akechi was going to be the traitor of the Phantom Thieves. Even though like he wasn't an actual teammate from the start, it's just so funny of how it just slowly comes out that way. And it was enjoyable actually. And he really enjoys the competitive side of Joker with him, so I thought it was just funny, especially when you talk shit to his face. But when he pulls out that gun on you when you enter the mementos with him to square up, like, dude, (laughs) whoa, okay, you really are trying to kill him, but you're trying to ensure what the limits are. I just, wow, (laughs) okay, Akenchi. But see, that's the thing though, like, again, he has the great complimentary, like, yin and yang with Joker and he's not stupid, he's intelligent. Like, don't get me wrong, I understand his motives all too well with that, but the way of how he was going about that and then how he just, you know, backtracked with the story and such, I'm just like, dude, you, you had it. You kind of had something going for you in the original base game and I just, what the hell is this? And, I'm not gonna lie, I was kind of hoping that they would fix that in Royal, but they just did not wish again, get- It kind of just gave me a little bit of a conflicting relationship with Akechi, rather than me just hating him in the original game. So, it is a little bit of a step up from that, but I guess since this is the reality that has happened in Persona 5, it makes sense as to how the events of Royal tie in together in a way, so... Which, it does make me appreciate Royal Akechi even more, because since he came back for this, he was super adamant of denying this new reality that Maruki was carving for everyone. And since the circumstances of the abnormalities were very extreme, this brought out more of the honesty of Akechi of who he truly is. I don't know if it's because Robbie Damon performed Akechi very well in Royal, but oh my god, just the way that he mentions of that there is no purpose of... Upholding the sincere Detective Prince act that he was holding out for so long. For many years just to do what he had to do. And like now that we see the true upfront face of Akechi here. It was just so good. Like shit, screw your Detective Prince act. Your true self is even better. And you know what? This just makes me like really think. Like let's just say that Akechi really... He was able to like have that type of personality... As he was a detective prince. Like, he doesn't have to have... I understand that, like, he needs to have social popularity and good attraction from the media, the public, everything. He needs all that type of publicity. But if he just gets the job done, if he acts the way that he is, you're gonna have a hard time saying shit to his face. (laughs) And I kind of got a little bit curious how he would act with me if I were to invite him, like, to the jazz club and darts and stuff like that and just... His nature alone, I feel more comfortable this way because that whole like fake act that he was putting up with, like, I enjoyed the rivalry of how it was for the start, it was pretty nice though, but this is just, whoa, okay, you know what, even though you are my enemy, you are a piece of shit, I would not mind this. And it's just so weird to even say that out loud, but it's just, that's how good it was. Again like I said I don't know if it's because of Robbie Damon he just performed a catchy that well but Jesus Christ Wow and I'm sorry I'm gonna have to go a little bit further more about the performance of the voice acting but I just want to make a quick comment of how good a catchy is as the nav the navigator to when you go inside the palace with him and Kasumi. And you know what? It was a nice change of pace. Like, it was a quick little bit of refresh because we're so used to Futaba and Morgana being, like, the nav, and then sometimes, like, Makoto giving out advice and stuff like that to her deductions and everything, though. But Akechi just giving out the orders, I just love it because it has, like, the most personality. I love it. It's just so fucking funny. Man's really out here going, like, we gotta hit him where it really hurts, or do you want me to kill it, or... It's just just so fucking funny, like, it's so aggressive as fuck. Not gonna lie, this kind of made me wish that for the new palace, we would be able to choose who would be our nav, either Futaba, Morgana, Makoto, or Akechi. Cause obviously, like, I definitely would take full advantage out of that, just switching out the lines, it's just so fucking... Oh man, I'm so sad that that was short-lived for a while until the fanatheets returned, and well help kick ass, which we'll get into that a little bit later, actually. Now, going back to his character here real quick, most of Akechi's character is just warped and manipulated. I just think it's really interesting that Akechi was immediately disgusted with Maroki's vision of what he wants to create with this new reality, even if it were to make Akechi happy of what his old desires were to be. What's happened? Happened, and as he mentioned himself, he would hate to live a FULL life concocted by somebody else, especially to that his desires are being toyed with just because that what happened the actual reality, well, it's gonna be rewritten by what he wanted originally, and it's just kinda fucked. It's not a way of saying that he accepted his defeat, it's just more like, well, This is exactly what he wanted. He knew his destiny from the very start, so he's wanting to stick by it, and he doesn't want anything to interfere with that. Which, it makes sense. And even if the new reality just kind of gave him the platform to somehow make that happen, in a sense, with that small time frame, he chose not to because he, he got his ass kicked, so if he tries that again, he's fucked anyways. Plus, he would've tried to kill them all by now, so there's no point. And this is the same person that does not give a flying rat ass about working with other teammates and other people and stuff like that because he wants to be relied on, he just hates all that shit, even with his true nature, like, being revealed that way. So, oh fuck yeah, there's no point he's gonna have to swallow up his fucking ego and ask assistance to put a stop to the abnormalities that are not only extreme, but if it is fulfilled, the changes are irreversible and they will never be able to awaken out of this new reality that monarchy is rewriting due to people's wishes. So, I'm not so sure to really call it character development, or this is just the fact that, like, you know, again, he decides to drop the whole Detective Prince facade because there was literally no point after for all that's happened, so it's really hard to really determine this, I'll let you decide that part. But, to me, what I can say is that this is not a bad thing, this is actually a great thing that made Akechi actually tolerable in Personified 5 Royal. You know, the one thing that I'm surprised Akechi did not take advantage out of, since this was a unique persona ability that he had, he was able to tamper with people's hearts by, you know, going through the psychotic breakdowns and, like, applying this type of, like, rage. I'm a little surprised that he didn't even attempt to summon, like, shadows in this fucking story, or, like, turn the fucking channels around against the Maruki, at least some of them, for allies to help out, in a, in a way, for the infiltration, but I don't know. <laughs> That is all I really have to say about Goro Akechi and Persona 5 Royal. I will probably mention him a couple more times through the other points I have to go over for this review. So, we can just move on to the other Phantom Thieves, because I actually want to comment a little bit more about their confidants a little bit. Uh, the bad ending, the alternative ending, and their wishes. Because I find them quite interesting. You know, just seeing of how happy they were for the reality that they wished for, and for everything that was just lining up the pieces too perfectly, it just... It made me sad. It broke my heart heavy. Morgana turning into human, the erasure of Kamoshida's involvement between On An and Shiho, Makoto having a good relationship with her sister, and her father being revived, like, whatever else the events did not happen. Ryuji back in the track team again, and especially getting a scholarship? Admission to a college that would make his mom's life easier? Yusuke still under Madarame's care? Haru actually having a relationship with her father and him being alive? And Futaba having the perfect family reality? Bringing her mother back and Sojiro pretty much as her father figure? Oh my god, that was a lot to handle. And Sotro even asking you to stay after you graduate and even when your probation is over, supposedly. Then you, as Joker, pretty much somewhat wished for Akechi back for the duel. And see, when you're talking to the Phantom Thieves that are pretty much living in their reality, you, as Joker, you go to them, you question them about it, do you know this is the actual truth? Was this surely what? how this happened? How this is supposed to be and such? You could see it really hit their insecurities hard, man. Because, like, at that moment, like, this is everything you want it to be. Like, it's the most happiest thing that you just ever wanted. And it just, it hurts a lot, especially to, like... Break out of that that it was just all a dream, basically, as I would like to say, even though what's scary is that it's a new rewritten reality. Oh god, Maroki, you're actually a frightening character to the Persona 5 series. Fuck. Although I won't deny, them breaking out of Maroki's reality was pretty satisfying overall. It was heavy manipulation that he was able to control and the fact that he could even like toy around with the memories and such, it will revu- it will be rewritten to that reality as how they would have wished it to be remembered and to go on as for the rest of their lives. That's just, whew, whoa, that's a lot to take in. Now say that you do accept Baroque's reality. This right here, I just, I really did not know how to feel about it. It is so happy. I'm not even sure if this is supposed to be, like, called a bad ending. I just like to say alternate ending, but this is technically the bad ending. If Mementos and the reality were to merge as one, though, but in the way of how Maruki is twisting it. With everyone just so happy that way, I'm just saying, like, even they. I want to say it looked... It sounded fake to me, and all though, but it's just that there's just so much positivity, like, I don't know if it's something that, like, a gamer of Persona 5 would be really used to seeing that when everyone in that group has faced off so much challenges, and it's normally a normal tone rather than just so much happy joy and stuff like that, which, in a way, it's not bad, though, but the fact that, like, again, this is a rewritten reality that way is just, oh god, it, it's very conflicting. But if that were to be the case, then that just only mean that that does stop a person's development that way. I'll get a little bit more into that controversy when we finally talk about Key's Palace, though. So, continuing forward, I now want to talk a little bit more about the Phantom Thieves' confidants. Since they are part of your main group, I feel like they should have brought something new to the table to show more of their aspects of their personality and how you actually develop the bond with them. Like, it's nice of how their stories were like in the original game though, but I feel like that should be like something that has a little detail now, and something more to develop with these confidants. And like, honestly, I'm gonna get a little bit into the cases of the Phantom Thieves. For example, I'm going to start this off with Makoto Nijima. She might be one of the worst confidants that I have seen of the Phantom Thieves. But that's super debatable. Now, don't misunderstand me, I don't think that they're a bad character by any means when I say bad confidant though, but I want to learn more about Makoto. I just want this to be like between a Joker and a Makoto thing and the rest of the fan themes in a way. It's okay to involve some people sometimes though, but most of the confidant with Makoto, it was just about her, her duties as student council body president and helping out somebody that was completely irrelevant. Like, honestly, the highest peak of the confidant with Makoto was when you establish it with her. When you go to the arcade with her. That's it. Like, yeah, she kind of talks about her dad, her family life by a small extent and what she wants to do for her future, but it's not really much all about that. Again, 80% of it is just helping out some fucking helpless bitch that does not know how to fucking open her eyes. Yusuke Kitagawa. I'd say he's the most bland one, but it's not, like, terrible either. I'd say that it it had its enjoyable moments sometimes because Yusuke is just fucking funny in some way. That's just how he is. His passion as an artist, like, especially when he has his aha moments or, like, he's just depressed and such, like... I think it's okay, though, but it's just not that memorable, especially towards his character. It's more towards our passion, which is it isn't bad. It's not bad, though. I just wish that there could be another way to tackle it in terms of Royal as well. On to Kamiki is probably the most disappointing one of them all. She has her modeling gig as, like, a side thing that she does here and there. I will say that, like, it kind of was a little bit funny that she was having a model off against this bitch. I don't even remember her name, though, but I just don't care that much for her. So, and especially to her ways to improve, to strengthen her heart. I can see where, you know, it's like, eh, about, but I just feel like that it doesn't... It's not the only thing that's part of her character, you know? I feel like they should have picked this off from Kamoshida's palace. Because later in the story, she had her visitations to Shiho, and it just it just sounds like that she just disappeared from the story completely. On almost lost her very own best friend. She has the right idea to strengthen her heart, especially for the Phantom Thieves business and such though, but I feel like this could have been also applied to what's been going on with Shiho, what happened with her. Someone like her could really make a huge difference. She could help so much with people that have suffered the same way that Shiho did, and someone with on because she was also a victim for the Kamoshita case. on has her talent, so she could definitely make it work. I don't feel like it should have been 100% about the modeling and such. And the thing is, is that we don't see Shiho again until, like, rank 8 of her confidant, and... Well, until we get to the new reality type bullshit. And I'm gonna have to say this for On for her since she's a special case. It kind of just dropped her character development too. Her character growth. Haru Akumura. Hmm. I have a hard time caring about Haru Akumura, but I still did her confidant anyway since it's definitely needed for the story. Or should I say abilities, but anywho. I do enjoy that we're trying to learn more about the heiress of the Akumara's food, the Big Bang Burger business. Although, I don't understand why her fiancé, or should I say her ex-fiancé, just randomly pop out of nowhere. After the change of heart of Akumara's palace, he should have been gone out of the story completely. It just makes no sense that he keeps lurking around and just talking shit and just leaving our screen like that. Like, no! Like, we gotta throw hands! Fuck you, too! Other than that, it's really hard to really comment any further about her confidant it's not entirely bad but it's not like amazing either though but i'd say like it's decent at most you learn more about her motives and such and how serious she wants to really take that up for while also that she's handling her issues as the heiress so it that one it has more of a balance and it's a little bit similar to makoto's confidant except it's just a little bit more balance just a little bit more work that's needed ryuji sakamoto very good confidant You get to learn a good amount of background of Ryuji and his issues as a track team. And I feel like the way of how Joker was there for Ryuji, I feel like that should have been like a great setup as to how the other confidants, not in the fanaties though, but the ones that that they request, uh, they're part of the Memento's request. I feel like with that, it should have been almost similar as to how Joker helps Ryuji. Ryuji learned how to approach and tackle the issue in a different way rather than just resorting to anger and violence. Yeah, it took a minute for him to like really realize that though, but he felt a lot better now that things are different and the whole fantasy business and how everything that came together, it changed him. And I personally can say that just maxing Ryuji out first was probably one of the most satisfying confidants that I've had. The only thing I could say about this is that I kind of wish we could expand a little bit more that would be away from the track team. I get that, like, that's, like, his primary goal to make his mom's life easier and this whole thing with the track team and stuff like that. I just want to learn more about, like, what does he really see in the future? Like, more about—I want to say, like, more about the past because, like, I think we got a good general idea of that, though, but it's just, like, more about just how he's feeling most of the time, you know? That's just me, because again, Ryuji is a very, very honest character. And that's actually why I enjoy him a lot in Persona 5. He's a dumbass, yes. But he's trying. And he's working. There's some progress. I promise. There's not anything that I could say with Futaba's confidant, because it's like S-tier level of good. It's just that I feel that there's a lot of... Miss potential of expansions that they could have done for the rest of the fantasies that I feel like that they definitely need it. And it could still some way tie into the wishes that they made to Maroki's palace arc. What I will say that they did an amazing job on is making more of the friendships of the fantasies more realistic and real. If anything... It felt more real than the fucking alternate ending, even though I get it. It's supposed to be like the new rewritten reality, though, but just, it's more (laughs) realistic that way. I'm gonna say that now. Because if you really want the new reality to be realized, and this is just talking to Maruki, like, at least make the friendships and everything more realistic as to how it was, to how the fantasies were hanging out, you know? (laughs) But anywho... They added a lot of extra cutscenes and basically text messages that includes group photos and such. It's just so cute. It's like, wow, like, these are memories that I would cherish forever. I I love them so much. And it's not just the fanathees bonding with Joker. The fantasies are bonding amongst themselves. Like, they have, like, interpersonal relationships. Like, I... Take Showtime, for example, like, Makoto and Haru having, like, the great chemistry and stuff like that to pull out a beautiful attack like that. Yusuke and On, Ryuji and Yusuke and Makoto and stuff like that. All those people, it's just like, wow, like, that's how you know that, like, I wouldn't say, like, they're the always duo, though, but it's just, like, you can now see that, like, their bonds are actually getting stronger, not just because of Joker, but because that they're actually interacting with one another themselves. So, in a way, they were able to deepen the friendships and the love into the Phantom Thieves themselves, for sure. They did a good job at that. Now, here's the thing that I notice about Persona 5 in general is the fact that after a certain palace, when you obtain this new Phantom the rest of their critical character development, it takes place through their Confidant until like you get to the near end of the story. It might have been difficult to balance that out as, like, you introduce these new characters and such and carry on to the characters' motives, the ones that are already added to the Fantathies, but it just, it happened to become a unfortunate, big, flawed point of Persona 5. Now, I do have a lot more comments regarding the whole Confidant issue, which, again, I'm gonna save that more later into this podcast. So, before we finally dive into Maroki's palace. So there is this one thing that I want to talk about that I'm just very disappointed that it was not even fixed or changed in the story. The whole fucking squabble beef between Ryuji and Morgana and Horror's half-assed awakening. Now, I get it, Morgana had a little insecurity about his identity and, you know, him being... feeling like he's not really being useful to the Phantom Thieves anymore. And Ryuji and Morgana, they fucking bicker left and right, though. I'm gonna say this right now, even sometimes, like, it does get really annoying that they just fight for the sake of fighting at that point. Morgana just finds a way to pick on Ryuji, even when he says completely nothing. It's like, what did he do? What the fuck did he actually do? And sometimes Ryuji just, he retaliates in the same way later into the story in some type of, I guess you could say, revenge way, though. But good lord, it's annoying. At first, it was funny, though, but I just feel like between Ryuji and Morgana, they never really had that type of development together. Like, to actually squash their own fucking beef like that, because it got so fucking petty. Like, Morgana, are you fucking kidding me? You're gonna charge into a fucking palace on your own, especially to all the events that are connected together? Really? And later, because there was a lot to think about, and they were at a pretty tight situation, Morgana decides to react very poorly, just come out of nowhere and then just leave like dude why i kind of don't blame the way ryuji acted but at the same time i can't really bypass his behavior either because how are you gonna tell somebody they're useless just like that upfront, face up like come on like i could say that was probably like the most filler that's ever happened in persona 5 because morgana and ryuji the way of how they handle their issues and their character developments and their growth especially with Ryuji, who's kind of learned how to, like, chill out a little bit because he's an emotional type of guy. So he's usually able to pick up of how people are feeling and looks out for other people. Just seeing that, like, I get it. Like, Morgana and Ryuji, they're kind of bitter towards to each other, though. But I feel like they're the ones that needed the character development as to interacting with each other. They need to squash their beef, And the way how it was done, I feel like it was just done so terribly. And I hate the fact that it was not even fixed for Persona 5 Royal. I like Morgana, I like Ryuji, but that was the lowest point of them in Persona 5. I just... I hated that so much. Morgana's intelligence and Ryuji's character was thrown out of the window for that small time frame. And now, finally, I'm going to attack this convoluted point of the story once again. I don't really see many people talking about this, but... Haru half-awakening a Persona before she had her full awakening in the palace. I'm surprised Morgana or NOBODY had questions for that or even attempted to EXPLAIN. How do you have awaken a Persona? No one in the fanities has ever gone through that. Not even Kasumi Yoshizawa when she was posing as Kasumi and then she reawakened to Samire bringing back her Sandrion Persona. I kinda checked this out in the Thieves' Den when Morgana was having a conversation with one of the fanities. I forgot who it was. I had a persona in display. They were having the conversation that technically anyone that enters into the metaverse could awaken a persona. It just really depends of how strong their will of rebellion is, but even so, that's a questionable law that was just left untouched. I can understand not having your persona powers under control or like not yet like 100% as of the moment, but Just to go that far to say that, oh, yeah, it's half-awakened and such. Like, you see her in the fantasy beauty outfit or whatever, and she can hardly fight. Like, what the fuck? Either we should have played as Morgana for that small time frame, and we get to, like, really see how he met Haru, and see how this half-awakening bullshit kind of came into play, but still. Because when you awaken a persona, you have to form the contract. It can't just be, like halfway- No, like, you have to actually form that contract with that persona, going through all that fucking hell. Either that, or somebody in the Velvet Room better tell us what the fuck is up with that Half Awakening. And like I said before, like, even if we were to come up with a theory of how this Half Awakening came into the business of this story, like, they're only theories, we don't have any concrete evidence as to how this kinda, like, went along with the laws of the Metaverse. And sadly, even just talking to Morgana or someone else that have the persona's knowledge, it doesn't really help that much giving on their inside of the matter. I just ah it's so frustrating. And speaking of Okumura's palace, how in the fuck did Morgana re-enter into the metaverse? To Okumura's palace specifically, if he doesn't have the phone app. And then all of a sudden, Haru, who was nearby, got caught up into it. Again, no meta enough, no phone, no nothing. How did he do it? As a fucking cat! I don't know if it's the exception that he came from the metaverse, aka the Velvet Room, though, but still, it just... Again, we cannot use theory-crafting ideas as a counter-argument or to justify as to the events that transpired in Persona 5. It really does not make sense, especially the fact that, like, nobody questions it later. It is unfortunate that not even Thieves' Den could solidify it as to what the fuck happened here. So, oh well, it is what it is, but that's just something that I just can't exactly ignore, and I just want to have that at least, like, open out there. So now, finally, we can get to the good part of this, Maruki's Palace. Maruki's Palace is such a fucking beautiful one, holy shit. Scaringly, that sometimes it even gives me the shivers. So, the rest of my comments of Kasumi Yoshizawa, or should I say, Samire Yoshizawa, we can now bring that up again with this palace. Samire always lived under Kasumi's shadow, in a way, even though they're twin sisters, for some reason, Kasumi had more of the spotlight rather than she did. Because of that, she developed an inferiority complex and everything, and developed a lot of insecurities about herself, and she just started hating herself and the fact that she was always just that shadow. And eventually, because of Samiri just acting recklessly and just at that clouded moment, it costed Kasumi's life. It worsened her inferiority complex, and her solution to that was to erase the Samiri presence and become Kasumi Yoshizawa. She hated herself that much that she'd rather be the person who passed away. She wants to believe that that was her that died rather than Kasumi Yoshizawa. Now, in a way, I can see that it gets super controversial here because some people do not like this moment. Some people don't like the fact that this was another side of Kasumi, or should I say Samiri? And the fact that this could either go up or down, that's pretty much for you to decide on that. For me, I personally liked it because this is like the most of what you would expect of somebody to do. Especially for someone's wish being granted out of nowhere. And as you see in the palace, like, she defied reality. And she wants to stay as Kasumi Yoshizawa because she was crying the fact that, like, this reality of what happened to her was too painful. She does not want to face it. She wants to be part of this new reality, what she wished for, so that... All of her issues with herself and to what happened to Kasumi, she becomes Kasumi and she'll be able to live on to the perfect reality as she envisioned. On her wishes, that is. And you can't exactly blame her for feeling that way. Because whoever has been introduced to that idea, and if they find out, oh fuck yeah, some people would actually turn out that way. And it's like, it's so sad because it's like, you know, at the end of the day, it's their decision, though, but this is affecting the entire world as well. It's, it's, it's like an on and off, like, who's actually right here? Poor girl, though. That, she must have been fucked in the head that way. I feel terrible. And then you have a ketchy over here that's just simply disgusted with Maruki. Fun fact, Maruki's voice actor is Billy Kemet's, and he also came from Fire Emblem Three Houses. Robbie Damon also came from Fire Emblem Three Houses, and they had very, very interesting respective roles. So it's just funny that it just came from Three Houses back into the Persona 5 world. (laughs) Robbie Damon was Hubert, and Billy Kamins was Ferdinand. So, holy shit, just... It's like they just came from the universe. Like, they just never left. Wow. (laughs) Like I mentioned, seeing the honest side of Akechi bringing his chaoticness, it just truly shows that he is not willing to let anybody control him like no he is done he's ready to go all out even to the point where like the doctor might have to be killed this time and when i say this time like the fanathees never actually killed just only akechi but it's just like when it comes to changing someone's heart since the abnormalities were that extreme oh yeah the potential of somebody dying was at a high risk here and guess what, it somewhat happened with the catchy dying though, but it was bound to happen! That was reality! That's what he chose! That's how it was supposed to go since the original Persona 5! Which is funny because you're in that small section of Royal, and then after that, you go r- back to regular Persona 5, just Samiri added into the Confidant list, and then a little bit of a different ending. So, I think that's just very interesting. Another thing that I love about the palace was the music. The music that played specifically for this palace. Gentle madman, throw your mask away? Stop. Stop. (laughs) At that point, you want it right there. It's my number one favorite palace. At first, it was second, because I genuinely like Futaba's, and then there's Sai Nijima's palace to consider as well, but I'm sorry, but Madogi's palace was really the one here. How fucking fitting for a sanctuary laboratory. Fucking hell. But I did not expect Rivers of the Desert to be playing again for this palace. What the? Whoa. When Ryuji just comes in to protect Joker and Akechi with that, it's like, oh shit, it is on. We're gonna definitely kick ass. We're gonna beat the crap out of Kasumi's fucking persona. That shit was so cool. I thought, like, it played at the perfect time. It was so well. Wow. It's just, that's all I can say. So well, wow. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate that moment so much i actually have a dedicated save file just to relive that moment again and do the fight as well i just love it that much there were a lot of great moments that happened in this palace and i'm just glad that persona 5 was able to charm those ideas even more in this palace now for securing the infiltration route now we know samiri's code name, which is violet I didn't really see how that was a huge spoiler until, like, they actually explained the whole translation with that. It's like, oh god, anybody that wants to go that far into deep research would have actually figured that out. Atlas seriously put a lot of effort into this palace. It has a lot more depth. I could say that it even rivals with Futaba's palace. And I'm not gonna lie, I kind of wish that they did the same thing for the other palaces... Because for some palaces, it's just like, Oh yeah, like, we have to change this guy's heart because story relevance and stuff like that, rather than, like, going a little bit more about the character themselves as it is. Even though, like, ultimately, like, yes, they're a scumbag though, but maybe to study to really see as to why they turn out to be that scumbag, or why they're thinking that the way they do, why do they have their desires distorted, it would make sense as to, like, give them more of the motivation to steal their heart, rather than just, like, simple things that are kind of just, like, with utter disgust. Or just with alarm, you know? Like, seeing the notes gave us a better clear understanding as to what Maroki was actually, like, really thinking. And seeing the flashback takes, it just shows us to, like, where did this start at all? Like, how did this become an ever-growing thing of him to where he is today now? I feel like that would have been, like, a nice feature to include for some of the palaces. Like, not entirely. Like, the way of how it was done with Marduki, but at least in some way, just to, like, understand it more. Plus, it'll be a learning experience of how they deal with people, too, so there you go. Now, for this part, I think it's very appropriate for this palace, because I don't see how they could add this type of same dev to the other palaces. But what makes this even more unique is the psychological test that they make you do. It was extremely thought-provoking, it actually makes you really think as to, like, what is the actual right choice there. Like, even though you had to make the choice that Maruki would deem you as, like, you're on the clear, like, you don't need treatment, though, but it's like, what would you actually choose, you know? Because there's no such thing as a right or wrong answer here, though, but, whoo! But it really narrows down as to the type of person that you might be, (laughs) This goes as to how you would help yourself out. How would you help a friend out? What are your goals? What do you want to actually seek for your true happiness? And with that, you'll find out what treatment you quote-unquote need for that, though. In Maruki's language, that is, though. But at the end of the day, like, if you really think about it, like, this is something that you can even relate to. To the basic concept of that, and it just goes on. It goes on. That's why, like, like, it kind of drained me a little bit, though, but I had a fun time, like, puzzling it out through my head. Now approaching the boss fight. Now, obviously, when you have the conversation with Madokichi the day before you infiltrate his palace to steal his treasure, I thought it was so fucking like it, it definitely sent a fucking feeling to me. That Joker literally just flips that card out of his fucking sleeve and was just like, "Oh yeah, you forgot about this. It's all yours." Like, whoa. Okay, I have not seen a slick fucking calling card delivery like that in a while. Besides with Shido and shit, that was just so fucking... That was just cool, but fucking funny at the same time, too. And Jesus Christ, Akechi really wanted to fucking spy on that conversation. Holy crap, he was not gonna let that go for shit or just leave it up to Joker alone. He really wanted to be up in all of that business very closely. Though, I'm not gonna lie, it's just that... The way of how that scene came off to me when Maroki revealed that Akechi was involved in this, it's like you really are kind of holding him hostage, like whether you like it or not, whether you try to like phrase it in a way that could benefit them or not, you really held him hostage over his life that he's supposed to be dead. So yeah, it makes sense why Akechi has a huge bitter distaste towards to especially when he's like, why the fuck of all times in my entire fucking life, I am now being shown mercy, really? Fuck you, like, I kinda would be insulted too, in a way, if that were to happen to me, like, of all times, like, for the many years that I lived, just, of all times now, oh, fuck that noise, you got me fucked up, it is what it is, fuck it, just, it's, it's way too late for that. Oh yeah, I just kinda wanna make a little quick comment before we proceed to the actual boss fight. Uh the fact that Akechi has an actual voice dialogue for his third awakening tier persona rather than the rest of the fanities is just text dialogue. I find that very annoying, he's the only one that gets the fucking voice quoting dialogue spotlight. Oh man. Okay, but anyways. A cognitive science researcher that has the will of rebellion, which was basically to defy the cold reality and everyone should be happy to into this new reality that he is super adamant about making it happen, has summoned a fucking powerful goddamn persona. I did not expect for a crazy persona power like that. Like, I know, like, Joker, like, his Arsene, like, he was able to summon Satanao, a very fucking, like, OP fucking persona. But for Marky to have a fucking base persona like that? Whoa. That's... That's insane. That unique ability to where he can actually alter your abilities. The fact that you can't use Persona abilities or Baton Pass, it's like, what the fuck? Like, you have too much fucking power. Whoa, you need to be stopped. Joker, bring back Sentinel again. Fuck. He has these exchanges with the fanaties about, like, why don't hurt yourself even more. Let me save you. Let me help you. I've never really seen someone demonstrate such maneuvers to that huge degree to where they're that desperate to save someone and to have everyone give them the chance for a happy life i just oh god it's it leaves you out of such a conflicting place it's like is this really right it really had to came down to the point where they had to use physical altercation of whose ideals should prevail like in the cutscenes it's like morgana said like You know, ultimately, some people might actually benefit Monokey's reality, though, but the problem is that it's affecting everybody, and it's like you can't exactly rob that experience from them. You can't be that god as much as that you have great intentions, like you want to fix what's wrong with the evil roots of our world. You can't be that god. You just can't do that. That's for fate itself. That's for the circle of life to take its course. On the contrary, That's how one could see the fantasies as actual villains in this aspect because, essentially, they're robbing people of happiness that they've been searching for for SO FUCKING LONG only to take away from them just because that it didn't align with their ideals and their... what they envisioned for what the world should be. The difference here is that Maruki is being that god that's trying to save everyone because he wants to guide that world into a happier one he's not planning to like use it for any self-conceited reasons he just wants everyone to be happy because that's how he truly feels that everyone should be cured that way then you have the fanathees could they could also be viewed as gods if you put it into that way they're steering the world into what actually happened what true reality is and it's like hmm what's best for society what is really best for the world for us what is actually going to benefit us in the long run? The reality that Maruki is concocting everyone for the rest of their lives? Or the fan Thieves to let Fate control them? Well, I wouldn't say Fate is controlling them though, but it's just, it's taking its course naturally. If you're listening to this podcast, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. Who do you think is right, Maruki or the fan Thieves? I usually spend my leisures looking up people's posts and their thoughts about everything as to like what's right and what's wrong, especially something like this very controversial with Persona 5, so I do hope I get to hear some people's responses soon to that. But it's just so sad that they just had to fight to basically to the death for this shit. Now this madman over here was able to evolve his persona to Adam Cadmon. But he really went that crazy to fuse himself with the fucking persona. I am thou, thou art I, Head ass. Now see, I would argue that something like this should not be possible, but then again, I forgot that he's technically the new god, so I... Oh god, just... Wow, okay, bitch, you really went that far, you fucking crazy, gentle madman. They kinda had a little bullshit moment of like, oh yeah, we can kick your ass and stuff like that though, but I mean, to be fair, to be fair, the Vanities have defeated a god before. Maybe it's not as strong as Maruki as the new god though, but I mean, come on. I personally think it works here. Although I will say it was a shame that we did not see Satana again, but I, this is still good too. This is still fine. And, of course, the song that I'm playing right now is I Believe. And you know what? I'm so glad that they made, I guess you could say, what I would like to consider this song is Life Will Change Part 2. Like, Life Will Change, like, they're usually going out in style of, like, yeah, this is our goal, this is what we're doing, you can't catch us. But I Believe, man, that just shows that they're adamant of what they're doing. It's like, oh, no, I thought I told your ass, so try again. Like, nice job. I gotta give it to Atlas and Lin for making the song so beautiful. Just the soundtrack for Persona Royal, just out of this world. Like, the game already receives a 10 out of 10 for its soundtrack, though, but if you add Royal into it, oh yeah, let's make it a 100 out of 10. Wow. I also enjoyed the square-off beatdown between Joker and Maroki. You could feel his anger, his frustration, his, how upset he is about to his everything that All the things that he was working for just basically got- went to nothing because of the Phantom Thieves. Not gonna lie, if I was in his shoes, I would probably have a hard time of not hating the Phantom Thieves for doing that. Just a little bit. He has a lot of strength for not even hating them, but... Fuck. After all that hard work- Oh, you got me fucked. You got me seriously fucked. And I felt bad for him even more. I was under that impression that Maruki probably had to die here just to ensure that whatever the fantasies that they were doing like this is what they chose so they have to actually stick to this reality i thought it would have a bigger impact that way like it's good that like maroki did survive after for the aftermath of the palace but i will say that like now like as they argue like they have to look to the future they gotta do everything that they can i guess you could say that they probably given that will to maroki in a sense so after all of that, I think it was best that we didn't see him again, though, but hey, <laughs> we kind of do, which we will actually talk about that a little bit more later, though, but basically, that's pretty much what I have to say in the contents of monarchy's Palace alone overall, so I kind of just want to throw in this fun fact a little bit just before, like, I get to my next point of Persona 5 Royal, um, when you meet up with Lavenza at high school, Shujin Academy, This bitch over here actually says SUB, like... Okay, that actually brought me life. Oh yeah, also, just a tip for you guys, like, if you have not done this, you can actually hang out with the Twin Wardens, like, on a daily basis before, like, they fuse as... Lavenza? So, I suggest you actually, like, hang out with them, because it's actually worth it. it. It's so fucking hilarious. And plus, eventually, Lavenza wants to hang out with you at some point, so that time duration, I promise you, it'll be worth it. Again, most of it is text dialogue, again, I know it's like, a little bit of a hassle, especially if you're not a huge fan of that, that you kinda just need voice acting sometimes, but what you get out of that, what you see, is just so fucking hilarious, you will- you're gonna get a huge kick out of it, for sure. I talked a lot about, like, the major heavy lore of Personified Royal, so I'm gonna kind of shift away a little bit from that, since I pretty much covered almost everything for the major lore. I'm gonna shift this a little bit to the side thing that goes on in Persona 5 Royal, but, again, it's the crucial part that I said that we were gonna talk about. And that's the confidants. Not just the fan of but confidants overall. The concept of that. Now... I understand that I talked about this before in my previous podcast episode, but I want to expand on this much more. Because after replaying Persona 5 several times, including Royal even more, and understanding the concepts from Persona 4 and 3, the social links idea, we need to go on more about this. Not only did I feel disappointed most confidants were simply ported, and the only debt that they added were the phone calls, but the entire concept of doing them. They're mostly chores. It's even difficult for the characters you want to be invested in. You are mostly in it for the skills that you need to get or however else you wish to complete the game. You're so stressed and thinking about this first of who you should spend time with that will uh, benefit you faster in the metaverse rather than thinking, I want to genuinely spend time with this person because I like this person and I want to know more about them. While I do like the concept of getting a metaverse benefit out of them, it is more focused as an accomplishment that you max someone out rather than just, again, the sole purpose should be just to get close to that confidant because you just want to learn about their background and their story, you know? Let's go with this logic that they are part of this game and they give the metaverse benefits. Why is it that they're completely separate from the game? It's like they are different universes. They are part of Japan society and are located in the great scheme of events transpired closely with the fantasies. I'm not saying they should be super important to the story, but they are completely filler when, to that extent, they shouldn't be. I honestly feel that the fantasies should not even be confident on responsibilities at all, and they are main characters that are story relevant. But I'm going to save that point for right now, and I'm going to finish tackling the side confidants here. You can argue that their relevance kicks in when they are cheering for you only when you max them out, when you're battling against the final boss of Persona 5 base, and that's nice! That's great! But that's all you really see for the story, and especially for bailing you out out of jail, that's it. I believe the concept of phone calls they've added should've been more for story related from the side confidants to check up on you, and the progress of you stealing distorted desires, and I'm going to say that it sucks that they only check up on you, is when you're presumably dead to the public by Shido's palace. Now I'm not saying that they have to know all of your business as a phantom thief, but as you progress through the story, and when they hear the news for each day that progresses, it should be something maybe Joker can wake up to or about to go to sleep, rather than just simple text, he receives a phone call, they do the checkup from there. If you think that's a little bit much, then let me bring this up. Maybe this might change your mind. Let's talk about Akumura's palace. After you change Akumura's heart, he dies. We obviously know who did it, but to the media, the general public, because of these abnormalities, the one thing the public will think of is that the Phantom Thieves did it. Because how else can you like randomly explain a change of heart, a mental shutdown, and then just having a heart attack on stream? You will automatically think that they did it. And what's super strange is that the confidence you might have already maxed out, they don't question it at all. These confidence that you max out, find out eventually that you are a Phantom thief. They know the controversy of the group. They grasp the idea of what their objective is, and at first, that's fine. It's totally cool, because they're that grateful to Joker saving them from trouble. They have no intention of selling him out, which is also fine. I just find it strange that they did not say anything anything to Joker in the aftermath because of blind faith. The concept of phone calls would have been the perfect time to be utilized for a time like this, to call up and question Joker about the accusation of murder. This way, they would feel like they're actual additions to the Persona 5 story and it would have more weight and merits to it. This way, because society judges you, no one should be talking to you during that time frame because of the questionable target's fates that have been unfolded. They don't talk to you at all until you clear your name by stealing Shido's heart. It's just to me, even the support that they give you, it's a challenge to believe that they are truly a part of the Persona 5 world. Now let's get back to the Phantom Thieves as Confidants, okay? I'll stress this again that I am very satisfied that they made the Baton Pass leveling up features as its own system function rather than raking up your teammates just to receive that battle mechanic. However, I personally think they should have expanded that concept a little bit further. As stated before, it's a hassle and stressful to think, who do I have to rank up today and coming up with a strategy to rank your confidants up for abilities in whatever time that you have left rather than simply relaxing and deciding who do you want to actually learn more about and just actually chilling. The places you can visit like in Joji, should be primarily to obtain your abilities from your teammates in some way and after that, if you want to spend more time with them for the day, you can have that option and you guys could go wherever you'd like and you can learn more about their background there and of course go along with the dialogue of how it was set up in their original or slightly changed, as I believe it should be. And your bonus for doing that is gaining more Arcana burst experience for the Persona Fusions. I just hope something like this atlas takes notes as to how they've been doing their confidence slash social links because. I do see that this is a huge chore that most people, at, like, later, especially to how many characters that are part of Persona 5, it gets pretty tiresome. If you have any comments of how you think they should have done their confidant system in Persona 5, hit up my StormConnect Twitter account and be sure to, like, leave a reply as to what you think about it, as to wh- what ideas do you have how they should be doing this, how should they reform it. So before we end up this podcast of this Persona 5 spoiler reviews and me giving off my verdict of Persona 5, I will now be going over my Q&A session, and then after that we can just end it off from there. So, question one, thoughts on the ending cutscene changes? You know, I already knew that it was going to be altered some way because obviously like this is royal, not just like regular base Persona 5, but this kind of caught me off guard. When Ryuji calls up everybody to meet up at the cafe, and everyone just had news to spill all of a sudden, after this whole fan of these business was over, it's just like, holy shit. You guys have goals that you guys want to pursue, and, like, this is actually it. This, this entire, like, friendship group and such, it's kind of over now. Their part-time job is over, and everything that's happened, it's finally put to rest. Like, they're moving on, and it's like... Wow, that actually hit different to how it was in the original game. What the fuck? I don't know. I just feel like that, it actually serves as the true ending. Like, it's actually finally time to move on. Like, Persona 5, like, I think it's ran its course with that. I'm not saying that it has completely, though. But it just felt that way after playing Royal. Like, everything's actually over. Like, they're done. They fucking made history. They're fucking legends. And now, like... It is what it is and something that we all just have to remember with it just I don't know That's how I kind of proceed with the ending with that of what the fantasy's like new ending is I just it hurts a lot not gonna lie Now of course the animated cutscene for the ending was going to be altered in a way Because they had to add in the new character Samiri and Maroki this kind of different I don't know if I actually enjoyed it or not Samiri was just there, and Maroki is now an Uber driver, and just seeing him, it's like, what the fuck? Like, I get that you're trying to shake off, like, you know, the others, though, but, the other ending was better in that aspect, like, okay, what the fuck, why are you here? We almost died because of your bitch ass, so, this is odd, no. No, Like, glad to see you're doing well, glad that you're not dead. You're doing fine, and you're moving on forward with your life, yay, but, uh, to get in a car with you, fam, I don't know, you, you kind of, You kind of did a number on us. I personally feel the idea of the ending, the true ending of Persona 5 Royal, I like this more than the base game, the true ending for the base game. But in terms of execution, I'm going to have to give base Persona 5 the ending cutscene. I think it was more done that way, and it kind of makes more sense, though. This one, it kind of just feels a little bit weird. It's not bad, though. It's not bad, though, but it definitely needs a little bit of some work. I will say that much, but... It's still good, nonetheless. I also want to say that I wish, because if you get the bad ending, there was, like, these amazing key arts that the artist made for, uh, the ending for Persona 5 Royal, the alternate ending. I wish they actually applied that to the true ending, because we kinda did not get that at all. But, oh my god, don't get me started on the fucking song. I- I almost cried on stream just listening to that shit. Like, that- it felt- very bittersweet. Like, late fucking pop the fuck off. Like, oh my god, you go off, Queen. Go off. Go off! Now, there is one more thing I want to talk about with the ending cutscene, though, but I see the question there, so I'm gonna save that to when it actually comes. So, we're gonna move on to question two. Thoughts on Maruki? I really enjoyed him in Persona 5 Royal. I also like the fact that he was also the antagonist, but... He wasn't the, an antagonist in a way that he was wicked or he had ulterior motives and just anything like that could be deemed selfish. It's very controversial and like he just wanted the best for society and for the world because he personally believes that no one should have to suffer like this. What is the harm in that? He was written well all the way to the end and I only hope for the best for him. Question 3. Thoughts on Samari Yoshizawa? Like I said, i did not expect her to be this good i don't think that she was like randomly squeezed in i personally think she's probably like one of the best fan thieves in the group i honestly wish that she was kind of like tied into the main story a little bit more like when i say that i'm talking about base persona 5 for infiltrating like the few last palaces before we went to royal i wish we had that opportunity with her because she's actually really cool to hang out with and i'm not wanting to lose brain cells when i talk to her she rivals with Futaba, because I personally think that Futaba is the best fan of Thief, though, but Kasumi is the next one that rivals that big time for me. Question 4. Thoughts on the third semester overall? If you want me to be honest with you, the one thing I just did not like about the third semester is the fact that I personally think that 22 days was not enough. Like, you get an extra, like, 10 to 20 hours of gameplay, and, you know, you have more time to complete your confidants or your mementos request though, but in actuality... After you do, like, your third-tier awakening for the fantasies, you don't really have that much time left. I kind of wish they gave a little bit more time, especially since the days, like, they're taken up by story-related issues. It's a very enjoyable experience for the third semester that I even made multiple save files just to go back to relive those moments in-game again. And even with some things that I find a little bit questionable around the third semester, I still enjoyed the story very much. I had a huge blast going through that story, and now I just have this empty hole feeling in my heart, and just kind of hoping that they milk more Persona 5 content, because again, I'm a huge Persona 5 fan, so I would love to see more. I doubt that we're gonna get a little bit more after this, but this... I think this is like a good ending closure to the Persona 5 series, if it were to be that way, though, but they definitely made history with this, and I just... I'm in love with it so much. And the third semester makes me realize even more as to why I fell in love with the game in the first place. I was just worried that their new story, it would not exactly fit in. It would kind of be out of place because that it's DLC story in a way, but they were able to complement the whole Desires theme overall. Well, the freedom breaking out of that, I think they did such a good job at that. Question five, any comments to make on Akumura's Palace? Disgusting, revolting, you know not many people are a fan of that palace and I have to agree with that It's the the worst palace of them all Like I can't believe I'm gonna say this though But the amount of benefits that royal gives you and the revisions that they did with the palaces the roots even I just can't believe it was not even enough to save this palace at all They even made the boss fight worse how do you do that? How do you make the boss fight worse? It was already bad as it is in-game, but the, the new addition of it, it just- No, no, that takes the breadwinner. How do you make me prefer base Akumara's palace over royal Akumura palace? I- No, you got me fucked up, Atlas. Why? Why? I feel like they know this problem. They're not blind to it. I'm pretty sure they know about this and this was done on purpose, especially. You can't sit here and tell me that, oh yeah, like they genuinely thought that this was a great idea because this will be a challenge for them. No, I feel like this is some bullshit. Because the rest of the palaces, it wasn't that bad to go through. And for Maroki's palace, even? How they built that up? Oh yeah, no, th- this was done on purpose. You got me seriously fucked up. I'm not gonna discuss that any further about Akuma's palace though, but fuck that palace. Never going through that again. Fuck that. Question six. Now, here it is, as I was saying from question one. Do you think Akechi is still alive? Now, this part specifically is what makes people, like, have a very bitter, not bitter distaste towards the ending, but it leaves off a different type of way where it's just like, okay, what the fuck was that? Is this actually over or not? I personally think that he's dead. There's no way that he's alive. I know it may seem that way into the cutscene. I could be wrong, but... They kind of- I feel like that was just a little bit of a tease for people to get excited for later, though, but I think that he already chose his destiny. It's- it, it is what it is. It's- There can't be, like, any type of way to explain of how he is back alive. I don't know. And even so, he should be in jail, not out there. So I feel like that was just some type of, like, hallucination moment, but, eh, hey, I could be wrong. However, I do want this to be noted to everyone that Personified Royal is canon. So, It may be possible that he might be still alive, though, but I personally think that he's dead. There's no way that he's alive again. Question 7. Thoughts on the new game plus secret bosses. So, they added Jose and Lavenza as secret bosses to Persona 5 Royal when you do your new game plus run. So, let me talk about Jose first. Okay, I'm sorry, though, but that little egghead was just too easy for me. They had Rivers of the Desert playing and shit. I was all hyped up, ready to kick his ass, and it did not even take me that long to beat him. But, oh my god, like, you got me fucked up that he tried to even challenge us. This man over here is trying to be the next Ness from fucking Mother. Like, this man was pulling out PK Starfall. Get out of here. What the fuck? Why did they rip that move off from him? And the sole purpose of that battle was for him to understand humans more because he was at a rut. He was kind of stuck. And then guess what? You get nothing out of that. He gets nothing out of that. Though he was being super vague and especially about this person that he can finally go back to. I wonder what that is. Because of how vague this was, I feel like this will not be the last time we will see of Jose. I feel like we're going to see him again in the future Persona titles. Not just for 5, but anything that just revolves like around in the world of Persona. Persona 6, Persona 7, you name it. We don't even see him in the ending as a cutscene or anything, so it most definitely feels like it's gonna be a little bit of a cliffhanger to like know more about Jose. I do have a theory, though, somewhat that I just kind of thought of. I feel like Maruki's abnormalities and his palace produced Jose. I don't think it was done on purpose, but maybe as a side-effect, since it seems like there is no connection between Maroki and Jose, though, but to that a huge extent, that is. Maroki was studying cognitive science while Jose is conducting his research on humans, trying to understand them, and Memento, since everyone's distorted desires and such manifest into the place like this, since it's everyone's palace. Because, again, if we go by this logic that he is the offspring of Maroki's quote-unquote power of actualization, That would explain so much, especially the fact that he had the power to alter mementos. It also explains how he was able to come up with that power with the wishing star that he gave to Joker. As a matter of fact, he could be Maruki's persona. It's a bit of a stretch theory though, but hey, you may never know because Manuki and Jose's background of their studies are not so different. But like I said, what could debunk that is that this might not be the last time we see of Jose. He's a cute little egghead, and honestly, like, I didn't care for him to that extent, but he was enjoyable for the time that he was there, so I gotta give him credit, especially for helping us in Mementos. Now, let me talk about Lavenza, okay? That fucking lolly running around with a fucking chainsaw asking people, will you survive, headass? No, 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 I have not been terrified of a boss fight that much in a while. She was actually tough as fuck. I have a dedicated save file because I kinda wanna retry that fight again though, but I did that shit on stream and I was struggling so much. And if you don't satisfy her, she will actually just cut the battle short, undo the fusing, and actually do an all-out attack on you. Like, okay, bitch, like, at that point, you're going batshit crazy with that power of yours. But I felt truly satisfied just fighting her. I definitely have the save file because I want to approach this fight again and maybe just come up with different ways of, like, team organizations and stuff like that and see if I can beat her with a certain team, a different strategy and such, and, well, just for the fun of it. It was just genuinely that fun. I understand that sounds a little bit crazy when I say this, though, because it's a turn-based game, but you actually feel the pressure in that. Like, I don't mind revisiting these boss fights just to fucking kick some of these guys' ass again and even reliving the challenge. I can probably say that I enjoyed this fight a lot more than I did with the Twin Wardens fight. I know it's a huge hassle just to go through another save file with new game plus content when everything is, like, nearly the same and such, but... Doing these secret boss fights, I promise you, they are most definitely worth it. If not for Jose, then I can definitely vouch for Lavenza. And now, the last question. Favorite Showtime attack? Now see, you can't just simply, like, come at me here real quick and just ask me that because I just love all the Showtime attacks. I just, I love Ryuji's and Yusuke's, Makoto's with Haru's, Joker and Akechi, and Samira as well with their duo and haru and morgana they're just all so good in their own ways i just love them all ah you can't just make me choose like this but if i have to make that selection i'm going to have to give it to crow and joker showtime attack i just love the energy that goes on with that showtime attack it's just so stupid fitting for those two and the fact that like the voice quotes it changes sometimes for every time that you you do the showtime attack Joker calls out for Krohn, it's like, okay, whoa, alright, this is already badass. They definitely stole the show there. But, like I said, I love all the Showtime attacks in each in their own way. I do wish that they had more Showtime attacks among with the other fan and Thieves. Like, personally for me, I feel like there should have been a Showtime between Joker and Ryuji. Because, that's the first person that he meets, and like, they have the best friend chemistry. I feel like they could have done so much with that. But, that's just a personal wish of mine like if they were to do DLC showtimes though, but that's something that I wish that they did, but I still love them all regardless. I love it for what it is, and it just- it's so satisfying every time that you get that- that red circle spinning around and then BOOM! Like, let's go! We're gonna finish this off in style! Better than all-out attacks, I'm gonna say that much. And you can even do it for boss fights, so it makes it even cooler! I got super passionate there about the showtimes though, but that's just how much I love that feature that they added into Persona 5 Royal. But actually, yeah, that's gonna be it for this podcast episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. I had so much joy talking about this game in this episode specifically. Now that I could actually say all this unfiltered without censoring myself of the spoilers and such, this was so enjoyable. I loved it so much. I want to thank you guys so much for the support for the r and coverage. We've been actually doing well for that, for Crunch and I for producing content for Royal and Remake. So thank you guys so much for that once again. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave out a five-star rating if you enjoyed this podcast. Hit up the Storm Connect Twitter at Connect E N or other platforms this podcast is on for feedback on the show. And especially for the questions that I asked earlier regarding for Royal. Especially like I want to know what your guys' thoughts are. This is Ender Ninja, and I'll see you guys next Wednesday.